very thankful uh, for the privilege of opening up the Word of God with you, and uh, always thankful to be here at Nebraska Christian, and uh, always thankful to be able to speak to you guys. You always listen well, and uh, expect nothing less today. I'm very excited to open up God's Word with you. So if you would take your Bibles with me and go to Mark chapter 5. Go with me in your your scriptures. We're going to look at a couple texts this morning. Really, we're going to see, as we look at God's Word today, a contrast of faith and unbelief. But as we get started this morning, I just want to shoot straight with you guys. Okay, and I want you to, to feel the freedom to be honest with yourself and be honest with me and the Word this morning. I'm aware that some of you guys in this room don't believe in Jesus. So I'll just shoot straight with you on that. I'm aware that some of you in this room don't believe in Jesus, and you'd, you'd actually be willing to admit that. You'd be willing to own that. Say, you know what, I'm not all in. And one of the things I want to say to you is, I respect that. If you're willing to be honest, okay, if you're willing to be honest with yourself and honest with God this morning to say, I'm not sure that I believe, I respect you, but please hear me. I want to know why. All right? I want to know why. I respect the fact that you would say, I'm, I'm not sure that I'm in. I'm not sure that I trust in this whole gospel message. I'm not sure that I can fully believe. So I'm not a Christian today, and I'm willing to admit that. I'm saying to you, I respect that. I respect your honesty, but I wanna know why, okay? I wanna know why. Now, you may say, you know what, Dustin, I believe the gospel message, like, I've reasoned it through, I've looked at the scriptures, I believe the gospel message, I'm just not really ready to follow Jesus. Like following Jesus is too uh, restrictive, right? Uh, I wanna have fun. <laughs> I'm not in on following Jesus yet, it's too restrictive on my life. And I'm, I'm saying to you this morning, I hear you, I hear you. You may also say, you know what, Dustin, I've reasoned it through, um, and I can't follow Jesus because it's too narrow. The whole gospel message that Jesus is the only way to God, this, this whole thing is too narrow, it's too exclusive. And I want to say to you, I hear you, okay? I hear you, I'm listening. You may also say, you know what, I haven't really thought much about it. I mean, I'm a kid, right? I'm in junior high and high school. I've got time to think that through. And so I believe it's true. Just not really into following it yet. I'm a kid. And I'm going to say, I hear you. Okay? I hear you. But I want to invite you this morning, I want to invite you this morning to investigate again the claims of Jesus. Okay? And I think what you're going to see in the text of Scripture that we're going to look at is a clear contrast between faith and unbelief. What I want to do is show you this contrast, this clear contrast of faith and unbelief, and I want you to wrestle with, 
my friends, wrestle with your unbelief or wrestle with your faith, okay? Wrestle with your unbelief or wrestle with your faith. Ultimately, I think whether or not you claim to be a believer today or you claim to be an unbeliever today, I believe the, the Bible will help us, okay, as you wrestle with your faith. So you're in Mark chapter 5. We're going to look at a couple verses here before we go into Mark chapter 6 for a little bit. But before we look at the text, I want to just kind of build into the story a little bit by giving you the background. Okay, in Mark chapter 5, one of the things that you see is Jesus, as he is doing ministry throughout the region of Galilee, he crosses the Sea of Galilee. And when he arrives at the other side, his fame is at kind of a peak level in this moment. And there's this huge crowd that's already waiting for him on the other side. There's tons of people just wanting to get a glimpse of Jesus, want to see him uh, perform a miracle, want to hear him teach in a way that they've never heard anyone teach before. And so Jesus gets off the boat, right? There's a crowd there, but there's one guy that sticks out from the crowd. And in this region, this guy's a pretty, pretty big deal. He's kind of an important figure. His name is Jairus, and he is a synagogue ruler. And this guy, who probably is, is not too thrilled about Jesus beforehand, now comes to Jesus in a desperate place. Okay? He's desperate. And he falls, literally falls on his knees before Jesus. In his posture, he's demonstrating faith. He falls before Jesus and he says, basically, I need your help. And his crisis is this. His daughter is sick. And he believes his daughter is going to die. And in this moment, he's totally desperate. And I can kind of relate to that. I have a daughter. She's three years old. And I can just tell you, if, if she was reaching the point of death or she was sick in that kind of desperate way, I'd be doing anything possible that I could to see her helped. And this is where this dad is, okay? This guy named Jairus. And so he's on his knees before Jesus, and he's saying, Jesus, please help me. Would you come to my house? I've seen you heal. I've heard you teach, though I've rejected you probably in the past as a synagogue ruler. Now I'm, I'm coming and I'm, I'm recognizing you as my only hope in this moment. You are my only hope. And guess what? Jesus agrees to go. Okay? Jesus agrees to go with this guy. And so if you can put your mind there in the scene, imagine Jesus going towards this guy's house. Okay? Again, there's a crowd there. People are kind of like, rustling inside this crowd, but they're making their way. No doubt not just kind of a jolly stroll, but a very brisk walk, a very purposed walk to try to get to this man's house because his daughter is dying. But then all of a sudden, guys, all of a sudden, Jesus stops. The whole momentum stops. The scene stops. And Jesus turns around and asks a crazy question. He asks, who touched me? And his disciples, you can see it in the text, his disciples are basically like, what are, you, what, are you, what are you talking about? Who touched you? Like we're in a crowd, everybody's touching everybody. But Jesus knows exactly what he's talking about. Jesus pauses the whole scene to turn around and basically say, who touched me? And what he does is he draws out this other woman who is also desperate. This woman who's had a, an issue of perpetual bleeding for 12 years. She also recognizes Jesus as her only hope, and she comes in faith, believing that if she could just touch the hem of his garment, she would be healed. And so Jesus turns around. He, he knows exactly who it is, but he says, who touched me? And he draws this woman out. He draws her faith out, right? And right there on the spot, she's healed. 
and Jesus is engaging in a conversation. Now, pause. Where are we going with this? We're going to Jairus' house, right? Now, can you imagine what Jairus is probably thinking in this moment? Jesus has paused the whole thing, right? And now he's having a conversation with this woman. I'm guessing that if I were Jairus, I'd be going, like, let's go, right? Let's get the show on the road. Let, let's get to my, my daughter's dying. Right? But Jesus has stopped the whole scene. He's paused the whole scene, and he's having a conversation with this woman. And it's in this, this moment, at this juncture, that Jairus, the synagogue ruler, receives some really bad news. Check it out with me in Mark chapter 5. If you would look with me in verse 35. And while he was still speaking, Jesus is speaking with this woman. They came from the house of the synagogue official saying, your daughter has died. Track, this with, track with this, my friends. Your daughter has died. Why trouble the teacher anymore? But Jesus overhearing what was being spoken, said to the synagogue official, do not be afraid any longer, only believe. Now, if you guys are tracking with this story and tracking with this narrative, you recognize that this is probably the most frightening moment of this guy's entire life. This, his only daughter, has been pronounced dead. Let me just tell you guys, as I imagine it, we don't know exactly what his posture is in this moment. As I imagine this scene in my mind, I'm guessing that the dude drops immediately to his knees. This news just takes him out. These guys come from his house to say, your, your, your daughter's dead. Your hopes are dashed. There's no need to go any further with the teacher. I'm imagining, my friends, that he's on his knees. And yet, in this moment, you saw the text. In this moment, Jesus turns to the man, turns to Jairus, and he says, do not be afraid any longer. Only believe. And the, the tense here in this language is, Jesus says to this man, only keep believing. Like you exhibited faith in me a moment ago when you fell on your knees before me to say, please come help. I believe you can help. I'm putting my faith in you as my only hope. And Jesus turns to him now in this moment and says, don't be afraid, only keep believing. Keep trusting in me. And in this moment, guys, it's a crisis of his faith. For this guy, Jairus, it's a crisis of faith. What will he believe? What will he trust? He's just received news that his daughter's dead. His daughter's dead. But in this moment, guys, in this moment, the guy trusts. Here's what I want you to see for a second. He trusts Jesus' works. How so? How so? Well, he trusts Jesus' works initially when he comes to him, but also in this moment. Why? Because he sees Jesus in this very moment where he hears about his daughter's death. He sees Jesus heal this woman who had the issue of blood, right? In this moment, when Jesus turns and says, don't be afraid, even though you've received the worst news possible, don't be afraid, only keep believing. He trusts Jesus' works, but he also trusts Jesus' words. 
Here Jesus says, keep trusting in me, okay? Keep believing in me. And this man does. And, and the cool part about this story is that it ends beautifully, right? The implication is that Jairus totally believes. He goes with Jesus and they go to his house. Jesus eventually grabs this girl by the hand, lifts her up off the bed. She's alive. And Jesus ends the scene by saying, get this girl some food. <laughs> and I love that. It's so human. Get this girl some food. Can you imagine that scene? How cool is that? This girl is dead and Jesus brings her to life. Amen? Jesus is amazing. He brings her to life. I'm guessing that in that house there was a big celebration and I'm guessing that dad danced with his daughter and it was beautiful. Right? But Jesus is the resurrection and the life. And his power comes through in a big way for this man who, watch me, watch me, who believes. Even in this crisis moment, especially in this crisis moment, he trusts in the works of Christ and he trusts in the words of Christ and Christ's power and grace comes shining through in massive ways. Beautiful, okay? But as you turn the page into chapter six, you find basically the exact opposite, all right? And I want you guys to see it. Go with me to chapter 6, verse 1. So coming off that marvelous story, Jesus went out from there, chapter 6, verse 1, and came into his hometown, and his disciples followed him. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and the many listeners were astonished, saying, where did this man get these things? And what is this wisdom given to him? And such miracles as these performed by his hands. Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. They were scandalized by him. Verse 4. And Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his own hometown and among his own relatives and in his own household. And he could do no miracle there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. Note with me verse 6. And he wondered. The word here is marveled. He was, he was amazed by their unbelief. He marveled at their unbelief. All right, check out this text. Let's study it a little bit, all right? You know with me here that they also have an opportunity to see his works. They also have an opportunity to hear his words. Check out with me verse two. As these people here in Nazareth are encountering Jesus, they say, where did this man get these things? And what is this wisdom given to him? They marvel at his words. They hear his words. They are able to reason that his words are true. And they are sourced in a power and authority that they have not heard or seen before. And they basically say, where did he get this? They hear his words. They also see his works. And, verse 2, such miracles as these 
performed by his hands. Okay, now, now watch me. These guys here in Nazareth have the same privilege as Jairus. They hear his words, they see his works, and yet here in Nazareth, what do they do with it? What do they do? Somebody tell me. Right, they reject. Here in Nazareth, they dismiss his works. They also dismiss his words, and they do so on what basis? That's my question. Why do they dismiss his works? And why do they dismiss his words? They do so on the basis of their own logic. My friends, please track with this, all right? Please track with this. They do so on the basis of their own logic, their own reason. Think this through with me. Instead of wrestling with the truth of what he said or the legitimacy of what he did, they chose rather to trust in their own conclusion that it was not possible for the Messiah to come from their town. That's their logic. They saw enough to believe. They heard enough to know it was truth, and yet they reject. One commentator says this, in order to maintain their disbelief, think that through, in order to maintain or protect their unbelief or their status of unbelief, they look for any explanation other than the obvious one. The obvious conclusion is that he clearly is the Messiah. He is the exact fulfillment of what was prophesied that the Messiah would be. So their familiarity with him has bred contempt, and they want him gone. In one of the other gospel accounts, the writer tells us that Jesus was taken out of Nazareth, and they attempted to throw him off a cliff. As Jesus displayed so clearly, he was the Messiah, but they would not believe in anger they reject. Thus, they do not experience his grace and his power. You noted with me verse five? He could do no miracle there. And he marveled at their unbelief. Okay, so see the contrast, my friends. See the contrast. With regard to Jairus, in this crisis moment, he trusts Jesus' works, he trusts Jesus' words, And in response to his faith, God's grace is seen. God's power is seen. But in the case of Nazareth, they dismiss his works, they dismiss his words, and they exist in unbelief, and his power is withheld. Okay? His power is withheld. Now, now let's be very clear. It is not here that he suddenly, Jesus, that he suddenly lost his power, or his ability. Rather, Mark's statement concludes this reality that Jesus displayed his power to incite faith and to reward faith. He's not there just to put on a show. Okay? This is not that Jesus lost his strength, but rather he withholds his power and withholds his grace. Why? Because they reject. All right, now, we've reached an important part of what I want to say to you guys this morning, all right? I think you see very clearly in chapter 5 and then going into chapter 6 a contrast of genuine faith versus unbelief. But the question is, again, why don't the Nazarenes believe? Obviously, there is a sovereignty issue that we could wrestle with, 
But just to wrestle with the text that we have here, my friends, my question for you guys is this. Why don't the Nazarenes believe? All right? And with this, I want you guys to wrestle with your own doubt. Because here's what I want to say. Okay? Here's what I want to say. Unbelief or doubt. Please watch me. Unbelief or doubt often masquerades as logic. Unbelief or doubt often masquerades as logic. So if you dive into this story here in uh, Mark chapter 6, you recognize that the Nazarene's unbelief masquerades in this logic that they've been able to reason out or conclude there is no way, there is no way that the Messiah could come from Nazareth. So they dismiss his works, they dismiss his words on the basis of what? On the basis of one premise. One premise, and that is, he grew up down the street. It's not possible for him to be the Messiah. He grew up here. Do you see it in the text? Like, we know his mom, right? We know his, we know his brothers and sisters. He's a carpenter. He's not a rabbi. Jesus? It's not possible. Even though they see, even though they hear, what do they actually trust? They trust in their own logic that it's not possible for the Messiah to come from Nazareth. Not possible. And so they trust in their logic. What do they ignore? They ignore incredible amounts of prophecy that point directly to the possibility that the Messiah could come from there. They ignore that the Messiah was to be born of a virgin. They could have known. This is a town probably at this time, commentators tell, is about the size of 500 people. It's a little small village. They, they could have known Mary personally, would have known Mary personally. They could have heard the story. They knew the Messiah was to be born in David's lineage. They would have known Joseph. They could have known from Micah that the Messiah was to be born in Bethlehem. They could have known the story going there. They, they knew the Messiah was to be a prophet from among the peoples, Deuteronomy tells us, from among your own countrymen. They could have wrestled with these prophecies, but they don't. They could have wrestled with the words and works that he clearly gave and also the prophecies that clearly point to him. But instead, they trust in their own logic that it's not possible for the Messiah to come from Nazareth. Now, my question for you is this. Is their logic sound? Is their reasoning sound? I would say to you, not remotely. Their logic is not sound. Their reasoning is not sound. Here's the deal. Here's the deal. My friends, please think this through with me. All right? Nobody... Nobody is an unbeliever in a vacuum. And here's what I mean. You believe something. Every single one of you guys, every single one of you in your seats, to the individual, you believe something. You can't just exist in, quote, unbelief. Sometimes people take a, some sort of pride in being like an unbeliever. I don't believe that stuff. And the point is very simple. You believe something. You believe something. In the case of the Nazarenes here, what are we seeing so clearly? They're going, we don't believe in Jesus. We reject Jesus. And the question is, what do you believe? Well, we believe in our own ability to reason out that the, Nazareth, or the, that the Messiah couldn't possibly come from Nazareth. 
And as you probe that or investigate that, you might go, is that really that solid? Does that really, really sound logic? Right? Guys, you believe something. Tim Keller has really helped my thinking along these lines with a phrase. He says this, you and I need to learn to doubt our doubts. Okay? You write that down. It's not from me, it's from Tim Keller. You and I need to learn to doubt our doubts. In other words, investigate your doubts. And as you do, you may find that your doubts are really not that solid. Your doubts are really not that sound. Okay, so let's investigate a couple we've already mentioned this morning. You might say in your mind this morning, you know what, Dustin, like it's too narrow-minded, it's too exclusive, too arrogant to think that Jesus is the only way to God. Well, investigate that for a little bit. What you're actually saying or what you're actually believing or trusting in is this. Open-mindedness must be preserved at all costs. In other words, all claims of exclusivity are inherently evil and must be rejected. Now, question, is that true? It's not true in a lot of ways, if you think it through. If you guys were, go to, the, were to go to the, to the doctor this morning, and the, and the doctor was to say to you, look, man, hate to break it to you, but you've got skin cancer. And this is the one treatment we offer. Okay, you've, you've got skin, skin cancer. It will kill you if you let it just go unchecked. But if you apply this treatment, it will be cured. And I would guess that nobody in this room would go, oh, Mr. Exclusive, doctor. Oh, Mr. Narrow-minded. Like, I'm not going to take that treatment. Right? Would you do that? No, you wouldn't. You would say, dude says this is the only way, this is the only treatment. Love it. Let's apply the treatment and live. But somehow when it comes into the faith realm, when people say, no, the Bible's clear. Jesus is the only way. We go, oh, Mr. Narrow-minded, Mr. Exclusive. Jesus is the only way. How arrogant. How preposterous. Right? Can't believe in that. In reality, what we should be thinking is this. Our creator God has loved us so much to send his son to die for us. What an amazing thought that God has given us a privilege to have a relationship with him. Of course. Of course I'll wrestle with that truth. Of course I will believe and trust in his provision for me. But instead, many people, many people from an arrogant place basically dismiss the claims of Christ because it's too narrow, because it's too exclusive. My encouragement to you is investigate your doubts. Doubt your doubts. Another objection that we've mentioned this morning is true fellowship or truly following Jesus is too restrictive. Man, I'm a kid. I want to have fun. Investigate that. What you seem to believe, what you actually believe, is that there is no joy in Christ. That fun and Jesus don't mix. Question, is that true? Is that true? It's not true at all, my friends. Wrestle with that a little bit. Recognize, wait a second, step back. God created this whole place. God created fun. Christ created fun. And in fact, God knows how you can enjoy his planet to the fullness. Without guilt, without shame, without the, 
the terrible consequences of sin, right? God knows exactly how you can enjoy this life. And in fact, life in Christ is, I would say, I'm not sure if this is linguistically correct, the funnest life possible. It is. It's the most fulfilling, joy-filled life possible. But some of you are dismissing these massive claims, these massive claims of Christ on your life because you say, it's too restrictive, man. Like, I want to have fun. And I'm going, doubt your doubts. Doubt your doubts. Jesus said, I came that you might enjoy life to the fullness, that you might have life more abundantly. So unbelief or doubt often masquerades as logic. Let me speak to the believer for a second and just encourage you with something that's encouraged me. I've often, I've often doubted the validity of my own conversion. Maybe you've been there with me desperately wanting to be saved, but wrestling with the doubt that I may not be. My doubt has been essentially this. I've asked Jesus to save me, but I'm not sure I believed enough or repented fully enough. And what I actually believe in that moment is that the power of Jesus to save me depends on the strength of my faith. When in reality, the power of Christ to save me depends fully and totally upon his strength and not mine. Amen? And so as I doubt my doubts and get into the word of God and recognize, wait a second, it's not me that's holding on to him. It's, it's him that's holding on to me. And it's his grace that has saved me. And I do trust. I do trust. Feebly maybe, weakly at times maybe, but I do trust at the end of the day, I trust completely in the finished work of Jesus Christ alone for my salvation. And God, in those moments, rushes over my soul assurance, assurance and confidence that I'm in Christ and that he's holding on to me. So doubt your doubts. Again, my friends, this morning, you believe something. You believe something. So if you have doubts, my encouragement is doubt them. Wrestle with them. Don't just thinly dismiss Jesus like the Nazarenes. When they see clearly his works, he's amazing. When they hear his words and they know instinctively they're true. And they marvel at them. Where did he get this? How can he do this? But then thinly dismiss Jesus and his claims on the basis of one piece of logic. Well, he's from Nazareth. He can't be the Messiah. What is it with you? Okay? What is it with you? What should Nazareth have done? My friends, what should Nazareth have done? They should have humbly listened and observed, opened their heart to the reality that the Messiah could in fact have come from Nazareth and they should have responded in wonder and amazement. How cool is this? Like we played freeze tag with the son of God? He came from our town? They should have been amazed by that, okay? Pumped by that, but instead they reject. And it's really not a humorous thing at the end of the day. They reject to their own damnation. It's a scary thing. So don't just thinly reject Jesus, my friends. Investigate it. 
So what's your posture at the end of the day? Are you like Jairus, humble at the feet of Jesus, willing, even in the most painful crisis of his faith to say, I trust in your work. I've seen your power. I trust in your words. Or are you arrogant and demanding? Are you aloof and demanding? Here's final statements. If you are humble and willing, this morning, if you are humble and willing to investigate the truth of Jesus, you will never be disappointed. Okay? You will never be disappointed. But if you are arrogant and demanding, you will always find a reason to exist in unbelief. You will always find a reason to dismiss and reject and hang your eternity on a thinly veiled excuse. So doubt your doubts and investigate the truth claims of Jesus. My friends, you'll never be disappointed. You will never be disappointed. As we conclude, I want to show you a little video that was super encouraging to me. And uh, if we could dim the lights a little bit, I just want to play this with you, or for you, and then I'll close in prayer. I remember my little niece ran up to me and told me, we learned about Jesus today. And I could tell by her smile she was so excited to learn about this man that she did not quite know yet, but she knew without a doubt for it to be true, because after all, Mommy said so. And that was the first time in my life that I looked into the eyes of a child and envied them because she had no idea of what it feels like to doubt. What it feels like to have your entire belief system overload with skepticism. To never know the day that you would finally be able to live beyond the shadow of a doubt I lived in its darkness for so long. It seems like I have all the right questions but never enough answers, and my faith is small enough to fit in the cracks of my palms, God. Every night I lay my head down to sleep, the city of my mind is attacked by a legion of questions threatening the living rooms of my sanity and holding them hostage, can you help me? Last year, my grandmother lay in the hospital bed like a bus stop waiting for God to come pick her up. I had never seen such pain. In such confidence, living in the same eyes when she told me, I don't know what I'm going to do, but I know who I belong to, and I was so happy for her. And something inside of me wished that somehow before she passed away, she could pass down her confidence in God to me like an old family picture. I remember sitting in the back row of a cold sanctuary, crying because I desperately wanted what the preacher was saying to be true, but my doubts were preaching a sermon of their own, and the streams of my tears turned into oceans of frustration. I remember sitting in a college classroom, and the only thing being tested is my faith in God. The only thing passing is my hope. Me, in a backpack full of fear, nowhere to go. No one to help me unpack. I sleep. I sleep, but I never rest. These lines around my eyes are not wrinkles. They are maps that show you the winding roads that lead to my pain. I'm tired. I'm tired. 
and I'm longing for the day that I can place my fingers in his nail-pierced hands because honestly, I've considered quitting, but where will I go? Back. There's no home for the living in the land of the dead, so I keep pressing forward. Today I have faith, but I can't make any promises about tomorrow. I'm surprised I held on this long. God, just make me feel like I'm not crazy. God, let me know that I'm not just making friends with these walls. When I pray, I'm not questioning you. I just got questions. Don't leave me here. Don't leave me. My child. My child. When it seems like you have all the right questions, but never enough answers, and your faith is small enough to fit in the cracks of your palms, I told you. Faith the size of mustard seeds can rearrange whole landscapes and turn mountains into open highways. Faith comes by my word, so maybe you've cupped your ears, my child. Don't be childish. But consider the child whose faith has not quite learned the definition of impossible. Have your questions. I'm not telling you to have a blind faith. I'm telling you to consider the blind men who had faith and believed my words before they were even able to see me. Consider the birds that eat from my hands and do not fall from the sky without my consent. So how much more will I love the ones that I died for? Before you doubt me, doubt your doubts. <laughs> doubt your doubts. And you will see they are just as empty as the tomb that I bought from. Truth is, truth is, you know I'm here. You know my truth, and you're scared. Scared of what that means. Scared of what that should cost you. That one day, they will all laugh at you, laugh you right out of their classrooms, and scorn you out of their courtrooms, but my love, serves as an eviction notice to anxiety. When they cast stones, my love casts out fear. I am the author and finisher of your faith. I've never started a work that I will not finish. I am the one, I am the one who will give you courage to stand death in the face and say, how dare you try to scare me? I know who I belong to. And when it feels like you are drowning, when it feels like you are drowning in a sea of your questions, just know I'm there. I'm there. Like when I drowned in the Red Sea of my blood for you, and these hands that took holes will hold you. And when I told you that I would love you forever, I meant it. Don't you see these rings in my hands? See, we are married. For better or for worse. <laughs>